Welcome to a very special Rejected Religion Spotlight. Uh, as you can see, I have uh, some very special guests with me today. Uh, and we're going to be talking about Midnight Mass, the Netflix show. Uh, for those of you who have uh, followed my platform for a while, you will recognize uh, my guests. But for those who uh, are new, uh, top... I don't know if I'm if I'm doing this mirrored. Okay, so I'm just going to start with my top left. Jonathan O'Donnell uh, was a guest of uh, on the podcast talking about uh, demonology in uh, U.S. politics and other matters uh, in their book Passing Orders, uh, which highly recommend. Uh, Below Jonathan uh, is Brennan. Brennan was a guest of mine on my very first Spotlight interview uh, discussing the figure of Lilith and how Lilith plays into the work of poet Renee Vivian. And then under myself, uh, Tommy Cowan. Tommy was one of my first guests on the podcast. We talked about William Burroughs and his uh, associations with occult practices. So that's a little short intro uh, of my guests. Thank you all very much for being here today with me. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having us. Great. I'm so happy that you had the, the time to, uh, to talk with me today. Okay, so for the viewers and the listeners out there, this is uh, not going to be a review of the show itself, as many YouTube channels have done in the past. They talk in depth about, about the show and in details about the plot and about all the characters and, and all of, of those types of things. We're not going to be doing that. This is a much broader discussion. Um, my guests all and myself, we all have our own interests uh, and own uh, areas of specialty. Uh, so what we're going to be talking about uh, are more things that are related to the show, of course, but not specifically uh, about the show, uh, if that makes any sense. So it's going to be a, a, a much uh, yeah, a broader discussion, as I said before. Um, so let's, I guess maybe we should uh, do a little uh, go around and start with uh, giving some brief first impressions of, uh, of what you felt and thought about when you were, you know, watching the show. But maybe in this case, I'll go first with the first impressions and then we'll take it from there. <laughs> so, right. I have, I guess, three main things that's, uh, that stood out to me, uh, that this was a story with very, uh, very many layers and very many themes that were all interwoven, uh, Themes such as uh, addiction, grief, loss, free will, forgiveness, sacrifice, faith, love, existential questions, uh, propaganda, <laughs> prejudice, extremism, all of these things that could go on and on and on. Uh, but that's just, uh, just, you know, a few that came up uh, when I was watching it. 
The second was uh, I had to really laugh because it seemed like this show turned The Exorcist on its head. And um, I have a, f a few uh, points here as well as to why I think that. So the first being that the priest is uh, is supposed to be this, you know, holy man of God, but he's actually the one of the evil characters, if you want to look at it very, you know, very literally black and white. Uh, the priest is act acting on his own emotional desires first, and uh, spiritual goals only uh, come in second place for him. Uh, Bev Keen uh, is the embodiment of zealotry and hypocrisy, and perhaps even a figure of evil, but I will return to her later in the discussion. Uh, the atheist Riley rejects the temptation or sin of the priest and sacrifices himself, and yet he is seen as a Judas by Bev Keen. Uh, vampires in the show, uh, although, you know, the word vampire, I don't think was ever named. Do you got, did you ever hear the, the word vampire being mentioned? No, I, I, I was unsure for a long time if the universe, if it technically took place in a universe where vampire folklore, like, didn't exist. Ah. Like, oh, or not. Uh, but I wasn't actually sure. I think there might be, like, a brief mention to, like, myths of blood-sucking entities at one point, but the yes. word vampire is never used. Yes, just as an aside, when Sarah was talking to the other women about looking into the history of, uh, I guess, blood diseases, mm. she does mention something about this condition or this myth or something like that, but it, I never heard the word vampire. Okay, so you're, we're on board here then with regard mm. to that. Um, anyway, so back to what I was saying, uh, the vampires are beings that are often portrayed as being evil creatures in, in horror uh, literature and film. But here, the vampire is equated with an angel of the Lord. So I thought that was very interesting, even though this being looks very demonic, as is traditionally depicted. And then, of course, Christianity's uh, most holy sacrament is linked to vampirism, the blood-drinking uh, <laughs> process of vampirism. I thought those were all very, very interesting and kind of almost, you know, made me laugh from time to time about how blatantly obvious this was, you know, that, that the show was using these these tropes in that way. And lastly, the this show seemed to really highlight the ease in which people can slip into hypocrisy and zealotry as well as cowing to an authority that is seen as being moral and good, which I feel uh, is quite horrifying. So um, that kind of touches on my talking points for later, but let's move on now to the uh, next person who would like to share their first impressions. Uh, I can share sure. quickly. I also had, uh, I think, maybe three succinct uh, first impressions. First, um, of course, I just felt like the show was one of the most thorough and pointed critiques in pop culture that I've seen um, of religion, um, specifically uh, critiquing or framing the ways in which religion can inspire acts of ultraviolence and cruelty. Um, so, of course, first impression. Second, uh, similar to you, Stephanie, actually, it was really interesting to watch the trope of the hero priest who is usually the sacrificial lamb in order to cast out evil, such as Anthony Hopkins and the right, the Exorcist, the Omen, the Exorcist of Emily Rose, was really subverted in this, whereas the priest 
uh, Father Pruitt was the the bringer of evil, li- literally transported evil from a different you know <laughs> yeah. country or continent to yeah, this small go. island, um, which was interesting. And then uh, the last kind of uh, impression I had um, was that vampires are usually, at least in my experience, or interactions with the vampire myth and discourses, they're usually uh, heavily queer-coded. Um, and there were some maybe, I mean, minor queer themes within Midnight Mass, but this, yeah, this queer-coded vampiric monster doesn't really uh, fit within the Midnight Mass narrative, which I found interesting. Um, rather, it's this question of, is this a monster? Is this an angel? Um and that kind of, I think I mentioned to you uh, Manon Hedenborg White's theory of proximal authority uh, and how that kind of translates in this show as proximal monstrosity, like what is actually monstrous. But, you know, I like the queer-coded vampire. I didn't get any of that from Midnight Mass, but I thought that was interesting. So it's something to note. I guess. Yes, it's very different than what you normally would see with vampire yeah. stories. So who's up? Who's next? I guess I'll, I guess I'll go next. Okay. Uh, so I think I think similar similar to both of you actually. Like I think my initial impression was, it's like reversal of the hero priest concept in terms of like the way it was positioning itself. Although I'm not entirely sh- although it does have similarities, but I'm still unsure if it fits directly because of the way that hero priest narratives tend to rely on like disembodied spiritual evil to fight against or like spiritual evil that like possesses rather than like a physical monster that is brought across. So like in that sense, I wasn't sure if it was attempting to do a subversion or whether like how, basically how that fit within the legacy of kind of like a supernatural horror and the role of like specifically the Catholic priest, like as a, as a figure within the role of supernatural horror. Um, I did think it was, like, I, other than that, I think one of my initial impressions were the, it's, I guess, processing of extremism, it's processing of, it's critique of religion, specifically the critique of, like, organized religion and authority as part of organized religion. Um, the way that it used the island and the town as this kind of microcosm of, I guess the tensions within American society broadly that it was obviously kind of attempting, at least from my eye, to kind of portray in terms of zealotry, um, authority, like hatred of the other, um, scapegoating. Beyond that, like I think maybe touching back on like the your your first point, Stephanie, about the multiple layers of the show. I think for me when I watched it, it was almost too much. Like, there was the sense that it was trying to convey too many themes simultaneously in a way that didn't quite work within, like, the narrative framework that it had set up. Yeah, it's had a very lofty uh, goals, I guess, in that case, if you're trying to include everything. So. I mean, I, I, I often appreciate shows that I feel try and don't necessarily succeed because I always think that they end up with more interesting tensions 
And I guess we'll probably be talking about a lot more of those. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe as we go on today. As an interesting aside, uh, I had watched last weekend, I'd watched Archive 81, which is also another Netflix show. <laughs> Very uh, highly a culture, uh, you know, every, I mean, every scene almost has something that has to do with the occult or. Uh, but my, I told my husband about it. We were watching. I was watching it for a second time. He's watching it for the first time. And he stops in the middle of the second episode. He goes, you know, this just doesn't seem very believable to me. And I'm like, of course it doesn't. That's the whole point of these types of shows. But it, yeah, you make a point of, yeah, there's just, there's this tension there that just doesn't, yeah, it just leaves you as the viewer not feeling like everything is in order or everything is right. So, uh, but I think that the, these types of shows, uh, not to say that I think the directors of these two shows are mm-hmm. on the same wavelength or anything, but I think that often with, with shows that are supposed to be about, you know, horror or, or, you know, other topics with occult themes and things like that, it does, it seems to be all kind of disjointed and chaotic and no, nothing seems to be, you know, fitting into the place as you would expect it of other genres so mm. yeah I, I take your point there that's yeah. good observation okay Tommy I, oh I'm sorry go ahead I, know, okay, I, just, like, I, I just thought of like one other point that I think stuck out to me like is the role of the vampire like and specifically the I guess the vampire's angel because the vampire the vampiric entity is only ever referred to within the show as the angel right. and a lot of the commentary that I saw around the time, like sort of standard commentary kind of in the media that came out around the time that I was reading it, would refer to it as like, they'd talk about it as like Father Paul like brings back a vampire believing it to be an angel. And it's like, yeah. no, the show, the show never says that it's not an angel. And like, I think that's actually quite key to the way <laughs> that it kind of sets up its mythos is like, like right. this could be an authentic version of Christianity. Like that yes. is being portrayed, and like the show, like the show deliberately does not like actually make a, a claim regarding that. Exactly, that's um. yeah, very interesting. <laughs> yes, I I was beginning to doubt. Uh, to your point, Jonathan, I was beginning to doubt whether or not uh, I was misinterpreting things. Mm. Like, is this really what they think angels look like? <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> well, the way that they argued it is that, you know, everyone in the Bible uh, has ever encountered an angel in those stories. People were scared to death. You know, they were terrified. So, you know, there had there was something for that to be said for that. So um, share yeah. your ideas with us. Yeah, there's so much to talk about, of course. <laughs> I mean, it's it's about seven or eight hours of viewing, obviously, and, there, and there's a lot of monologues. It's very yeah. Tarkovsky in how many monologues it has. <laughs> so there's a lot of thematic elements. Uh, you know, I, I had a friend watch Stalker, and he'd never seen it before, and I asked him what he thought of it, and he says, that needs more monologues. So I thought it was a good joke. <laughs> um, so... I, th- I think the first thing that jumped out at, at me thematically was that, the at least as far as when I was watching it, um, the, the primary theme kind of seemed to me to be a meditation on death and dying. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because, it, it, I mean, it begins uh, with, the, with Riley uh, and the drunk driving accident killing uh, Tara Beth. 
Uh, and, that, and that's a red thread that runs throughout it. But just all, all over the place, we see people, uh, there's characters uh, who die from cancer prior to the events of the story. There's characters suffering from dementia, multiple characters suffering from dementia uh, and things like that. So it really seems that it's it says, a, and there's several monologues just specifically about death and what we think the afterlife could be how people negotiate the fear of death, the pain of loss, this kind of thing. So that, that jumped out at me a lot. And there's a lot in the series about that. And it's very thoughtful, I think. It's a very literary kind of series. Um, and obviously, you know, religion, there's so much uh, in the series about religion and about loss of faith, trying to find, you know, a middle ground between rationality and faith. Uh, if there exists, I think um, Flanagan, who, who wrote and directed the series, he was raised Catholic and now considers himself kind of an atheist. Uh, so it, it sort of tells his story to some extent, but it's also very nuanced. It's not just about uh, valuing rationality over faith, because I think we see in the story a lot of characters greatly benefit from religion in the story. So it really does argue from both sides quite a bit. To, and to give an example, uh, towards the middle of the series, uh, uh, Monsignor Paul uh, is the one who suggests to Riley's father, Ed, that uh, Ed and Riley have a sort of heartfelt discussion out on the fishing boat. And this is when uh, Riley and his father reconnect for the first time. But this is theoretically one of the villains giving him this advice, but it leads to this really positive moment in this series. So there's this really nuanced depiction of religion as a positive social force and a negative social force simultaneously. So that also was very interesting. Very uh, good insights from all of you. Let's see. Why don't we now move to, uh, let's talk about our own, I guess, our own particular talking points. Uh, and then we can uh, have the opportunity afterwards to ask questions or, you know, give comments uh, once, uh, once we're finished. Well, there's so, there's so many places to start. My mind is just exactly. okay. spinning. I got you. Um, All right. No problem. I'll start first then. Um. I'm going to refer to my notes here because I had to. I had to do a lot of uh, a lot of thinking about this. Uh, my area of uh, interest is about uh, identity, uh, so I did a lot of thinking about two main uh, two of the characters. Pardon me, two characters: the Monsignor John Pruitt, or as Father Paul, as we first come to know him, and Bev Keen the woman who was basically running the church while Monsignor Pruitt was away on his sabbatical. And while I, while I found the stories about religious identity for many of the characters in the show interesting, I wanted to touch on these two characters because I thought there's, yeah, to me, it just, they just spoke to me. So, um, in particular, I'm looking at the psychological aspects of their story, uh, their religious identity, their authority roles, and how they use their knowledge base, and how their belief or faith contributes to their sense of meaning and uh, purpose, either for good or ill will. 
So I'd like to start with Bev Keen. Uh, as I stated before, she might be uh, the most evil character in this story. On the surface, she seems to be the steadfast sister who's keeping the church running on the island while Monsignor Pruitt is away. She te- teaches the children at school. You know, she's just an overall good Catholic lady. You know, that's the way she wants to come across anyway. Uh, but we f- we soon find out that she is, as Annie Flynn tells her, quote, not a good person, end quote. And I thought that was funny, too, the way Annie Flynn, I mean, she, she could have really laid into her, but she just said, you're just not a good person. Just thought that was so, you know, sweet and kind of keeping in her character as well. So, you know, looking at Bev, at what she does, she's stealing money from the church. She kills a dog. And I think she even poisoned Monsignor Pruitt because he was reacting the same way the dog was reacting. So I think she poisoned him. Uh, so this story does a good job at showing what a hypocrite Bev really is, I think. The actress who played her, uh, let me look at her name, was Samantha Sloyan. I thought she was an excellent actress for this role. She really convinced me that Bev was the uh, antagonist in this tale. So when Father Paul, uh, you know, quote unquote, Father Paul comes to the island, Bev seems a bit standoffish and a little critical of him, noting his uh, mistake in wearing the gold color chasuble instead of the green one on his first day. Um, and as we move further along in the tale, um, we start to see a real power struggle going on between the two of them, uh, especially once she knows that Father Paul is actually Monsignor Pruitt. Uh, when it when it comes to his um, resurrection, as it were, from the dead, then she you know it starts she starts to figure out oh wait a minute this is what's really going on. Uh, so I'll get in. I'll get in more um, uh, to the power struggle aspect uh, in in a bit. But um, I think her desire for power and control extends to everyone. It's not just Pruitt. Um, she seems to feel superior to everybody, and she comes across as having this need for being right in everything. And we see this really, uh, really beautifully in the cherry picking of scriptures to twist the situation to fit her vision of how people and things should be. So, for example, she slaps Mayor Wade across the face and quotes a Bible text from Deuteronomy about obeying the priest. And this is after they find Joe dead on the floor. Uh, And she says that Joe, the man who had been struggling with alcohol addiction, deserved death. And that God moved through Pruitt to bring the sword to the people. Uh, She even ironically tells Mayor Wade not to, quote unquote, cherry pick the glories of God when Wade shows his reluctance with her interpretation, which I thought was rich. Uh, In another scene with Riley, Bev admonishes him not to mock God's will. Uh, She quotes from the Gospel of John about eating Jesus's flesh and drinking his blood. And, you know, most Catholics don't interpret this literally, but now she is very much uh, taking a literal interpretation. And she tells him that this will give him the internal life that, you know, that he, uh, uh, that all of us should be longing for. Uh, She asserts that God is preparing Riley and everyone, for that matter, for what is to come. And says that the Bible uh, really, you know, points out that this is not going to be pretty. 
And she's referring to the book of Revelation there. She seems to be very accepting of the violent nature of what's happening. And this makes sense to me as she doesn't seem to hold life in very high regard. If you if you remember what she did to the dog and also, in my opinion, what she did to Pruitt. Um, and then later when she's so eager to poison everyone in the congregation. She just doesn't seem, you know, to, you know, have any type of second thoughts about that. Uh, She sees Riley as a Judas figure, as I mentioned before, and is disgusted that he rejected his gift and later encourages Pruitt to share the gift with the congregation at Easter mass by poisoning all of them, as I just said, but she doesn't take the poison herself, which I thought was also very telling about her character. So in many ways, I think the show cleverly touches upon some sensitive nerves that a lot of people have um, and a lot of people are feeling, especially now. Uh, what Bev is doing is one example of this. Uh, her judgmental attitude, I think, could be compared with the, the Karen phenomenon that, uh, that's been highlighted so often uh, in, in our society, you know, people who think that they can say and do whatever they want, no matter how hurtful or obnoxious or even wrong. Uh, On the other hand, though, I think we could all recognize that we often operate on our own knowledge base. uh, And sometimes we can feel a sense of doing the right thing based upon what we know and what we've experienced. So in light of that, if we, you know, if we look at Bev's backstory, there's really not much to work with there. We don't really know her backstory other than the strong impression that we get that she's always been this way. And this is kind of supported by Annie's words that Bev isn't a hero or a victim and that it really upsets Bev that God loves everyone else as much as he does her. Um, So we don't know what happened with her, of course, but um, you know, we don't know what happened that brought about these attitudes within Bev. But in any case, I think that Bev shows that this type of thinking could happen to anybody, could happen to any of us. We're all, you know, capable of being a Bev. Mm-hmm. And Bev truly thinks that she's right. Uh, and towards the end of the tale, she thinks that her idea to turn the congregation is the way to go. Uh, but, you know, when looking at the at the entire story, we see that she doesn't really have a plan. And in many ways, she seems to be opportunistic in how she reacts to things. Uh, and I think she's a very sad character. Uh, and she's all alone in the end. She doesn't have anybody. So, yeah, kind of helps um, to reinforce that idea of like, yeah, maybe maybe it is a good idea for us to think before we speak and think before we, you know, do things because, you know, do you want to end up like like that? So, you know, in, in a worst case scenario. So that's about Bev. Uh, Monsignor Pruitt, on the other hand, I think he comes across as a truly conflicted character. Uh, he's a priest, but he's in love with a woman and has a child with her in secret. He feels called to serve God, yet is struggling with his, his emotions and his physical desires. Um, his action strongly suggests that the real reason he brought back the so-called angel of the Lord is to give the blood to his beloved Mildred and not really to the congregation. That was kind of a second thought, I think, for him. 
his work with Riley uh, in private and the congregation in general starts out seemingly well. Um, and when he talks about second chances uh, and that rebirth, resurrection, redemption, and eternal life are not abstracts but tangible gifts from God, we start to see where he's going with, with all of this stuff. And after his own death and resurrection uh, as a vampire, even though that word wasn't used, <laughs> his message comes across as, you know, even more fervently. And he talks about the suffering of the Lord, fighting a war for the Lord that one can't see, but only feel uh, that God will ask horrible things of his soldiers, that the gospel of the Lord is full of horror, uh, that God's will dictates morality, uh, and as God's will changes, so does morality. Uh, the gospel is good because of where it's headed, which is the resurrection. Uh, all of these things that he's talking about greatly disturbed Mildred, as you know, as well as other people in the congregation. But you know, here's another thing I think that touches another very sensitive nerve uh, with a lot of people, and that's zealotry. Uh, this really gets under people's skin uh, when we're when we're talking about religious uh, zealots. It, you know, in this case, it's it's a Christian zealot, but it could be any zealot. Um, you know, many people argue that there is a quote unquote good and a quote unquote bad. Uh, but when talking with vampire with uh, the vampire Riley after he was uh, after he was turned. Uh, Pruitt stresses that he feels no guilt in killing because he serves God and does God's will as his vessel. And I, this is another thing that I, you know, that you see often with this type of rhetoric, a zealot, you know, a, a zealot rhetoric that, you know, this is God's will. Um, and what had happened was God's plan. So, yeah. So there's there's this then um, kind of disconnect from feeling any any guilt or any other type of emotions that would make one think that this is uh, this is wrong what you're doing. But I think if we look at you know towards the end, I think I think we at least I'm thinking he knows that it's wrong, but he's just using this as an excuse mm -hmm. that this is God's plan. Anyway, that's up for debate, I guess. Uh, because, you know, he eventually does see that this is uh, this is not good what he's doing. So, uh, you know, but by then it's too late. But I think this all gives us inter interesting insights into the nature of evil. Uh, you know, is evil like just one way? Is evil just all bad or are there nuances to evil? Uh, so, yeah, another little area uh, that you could go wander off in. So getting back to identity, uh, the identities of these two seem to be very uh, wound up in their religious beliefs, but in different ways. Uh, while Pruitt sees himself as a servant of God and his religion as a sense of comfort and guidance, Bev, I think, sees herself as religious, but only to justify her own prejudices and belief about her own superiority. And I think she uses religion as a tool uh, to make her appear special. And that religion in this way helps her to feel like she's supported in what she thinks, says, and does. And then re returning to the power struggle, uh, we see how easily Bev turns on Pruitt when, when he realizes that what he and Bev are doing is actually wrong. 
Uh, after Bev practically burns down the whole island, she claims that the church buildings will be the quote-unquote ark or shelter for the vampires. But when Pruitt realizes that what, you know, what they've been doing needs to stop, her loyalty to him quickly flies out the window. And she turns on him, claiming that Jesus commanded them not to follow the hypocritical, hypocritical priests. So she chastises one of the islanders for not being a believer, rejects him from going into the shelter, while all the while this man had just killed his entire family, and he is, you know, he's just feeling tremendous guilt and sadness about that, but she just has no, you know, no care for that at all. You know, Pruitt sees all of this happening and goes against Bev, welcoming the man into the church. Although by this time, everything's been doused in gasoline and set on fire. So there's just, you know, everything is just going to literal hell in a handbasket. You know, and then we're, we're getting towards the end here. Sarah, you know, his daughter with Mildred, she dies and... It was. It seemed like that was the catalyst for him that he finally realizes what's really important to him. Takes off the collar, throws it away, and it seems that his decision to finally choose what was most important to him, which was his family, uh, is the thing that gives him the most peace. But by then, there's there's no time left. So it's very bitter in that sense. A uh, bitter type of peace, I guess, that he might have. Uh, but he lets go of this false identity of of the priest, and he seems ready to, to die. He doesn't seem to be, you know, fighting against it. On the other hand, Bev is frantically fighting against it, trying to dig herself into the sand, trying to save herself. So when I was, you know, thinking of thinking about all of uh, all of this stuff that I just mentioned. Um, to me, it seems like this story really emphasizes the need for people to be true to themselves, uh, but also for the need of self-criticism uh, as well. And, and by that, I mean, you know, really examining your own beliefs and viewpoints, taking a hard look at what you're doing and asking, is this good? Is this helpful? Is this compassionate? You know, questions like that, which, you know, Bev didn't ask. So I think this really shows, a, a you know, a a stark contrast of the message that is supposed to be coming from uh, Christianity, which is supposed to be about love and compassion, um, and how this plays out in the in the in the lives of these two people. So that's my that's my talking point. <laughs> it's no mean. It's no. It's not exhausted. Exhaustive. I mean to say. Of course, you know. There were many, many other things that could be said about uh, Monsignor Pruitt and, and Bev Keen, but I'll just leave it there and just wonder if, if anybody has anything they'd like to uh, add. Um, well, actually, I'm just thinking now in your kind of um, comparison of these two polar characters, um, the the characters in which Monsignor Pruitt aligned himself with and the characters that uh, Bev seemed to hate the most, it's kind of this similar sample pool of the typical outsider or the demonized member of society. So I'm thinking the lesbian, the the former criminal, the single mother to be, uh, the Muslim. Um, and so as you're kind of talking about their, uh, yeah, I guess differences in the way they were enacting their their versions of Christianity, um, that kind of just made me think of yeah the the, the two sides of of the coin of any organized religion of being either yeah ultra violence or I think what you were saying compassion and uh, 
yeah, devotion, but yeah, quick thought from what you, <laughs> yeah, thanks. I mean, yeah, that completely meshes. So totally. Well, I, I can jump in and, sure. and kind of pick, piggyback on some stuff. Um, so I look at intertextuality a lot and I'll, I'll use the same word for talking about uh, ideological or let's say, uh, you know, some type of thematic transmission in cinema as well. I'll, I'll use the word intertextual. And I think intertextuality uh, connects to theme and, and topic in this way and morals in the sense that it, it gives you more avenues to look at when you, when you dig deep into some of the inspirations. And I think there, there's a clear illusion in the, the church scene uh, towards the end of the series. I believe it's in book six or episode six, if we want to say, where everyone's drinking the poison at the church. It's a clear allusion to the Jonestown massacre. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, it's, and I believe Flanagan has said in an interview before that he, he considers the Jonestown massacre to be one of the worst things that ever happened in history. Uh, and, which is hard to argue with. It's pretty awful. It really is a type of uh, micro-genocide that happened there. Uh, but it, it's interesting in that line to sort of, to sort of branch out into a theme to, to think about Jim Jones. And I believe Bev is kind of a reference to Jim Jones in a certain way uh, because Jim Jones had a bunch of people drink poison but then himself did not drink poison. He did commit suicide but didn't drink the poison, much similar to how Bev uh, did. So it, it is interesting, and it's interesting to think about the connection between charisma, religion, and politics, and charisma plays such an important role uh, in, in this series. Um, and I, but I always wonder, because Bev is not necessarily very charismatic. She has moments of, of fire and, and, uh, and passion, but really most of the characters don't like her. So it's in, which is a little bit different from Jim Jones, who was very charismatic. So it's it's interesting to see Jim Jones, perhaps the personality of Jim Jones, split and dispersed throughout several different characters uh, in, in that in that art. Interesting. I didn't uh, immediately make that connection, but now that you mention it, I'm like, well. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> yeah, that's not, that's not something I thought about either. And I'm like, oh, yeah, of course. Like, <laughs> now, now it's pointed out. It's very, like, very clear. Of course, of course. I think, Tommy, you also hit um, on uh, earlier, in earlier comments, the themes of death and grieving and dying. And I feel like that is such an obvious theme in the show. But when I was watching the show, I was just so hung up on, oh, which, which character is a monster, uh, which, like, which is angelic, which is good. And I was just, and, and queer themes, et cetera, that I just fully even, I feel, skipped by um, Aaron's beauty. I think it was Aaron, the character Aaron, her beautiful kind of dying monologue. I was just like, okay, great, this is nice, but... You know, what happens to the vampire angel after and so but I think that that's such also such an important point but also it speaks to your point Jonathan where there's a lot going on in the show uh, and so to comprehensively wrap one's head around all of these themes can be a little tricky but yeah I appreciate these uh, all the other 
themes that are kind of coming through now. Indeed. Because uh, I, I wanted to kind of point, I wanted to kind of piggyback off like the point that um, that Brennan made about the the alignment with the outsider, uh, like towards the end, like the like the lesbian, the the, the former criminal, the single mother to be, the Muslim, and like it's kind of ties into the way that like this is a series that's like produced like in the wake of the Trump presidency, like in America, yeah. and like. As someone who, uh, like, my primary research focus is, like, contemporary American demonologies, particularly, like, Protestant demonologies, and, like, their relationship to kind of structures of demonization and dehumanization in, in contemporary America. So I look a lot at, like, queerphobia, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, general structures of, of like, anti-blackness and settler coloniality, like, within contemporary America. Um, but like coming at it from that lens, it was very clear to me that the show was staging, I guess, like a dichotomy or a contest between a kind of Christian nationalist vision of here Catholicism, but like primarily like through the figure of Bev Keen and like I think initially also Pruitt or slash Paul, although he kind of shifts towards the end. This idea of the the kind of the singular community of like authentic Christians who kind of represent the the community as it kind of quote unquote should be like in their minds. This kind of I am um, versus like like the atheist Riley, like Sheriff Hassan, who's Muslim, like um, the lesbian doctor whose name is unfortunately escaping me right now. Uh, um, Sarah. Sarah. Yeah. Um. And, like, also, um, but also, like, Aaron, like, representing, like, a different form of Christianity that's, like, not not conscious, like, not aligned in the same way as, kind of, as Bev Keen. And, like, the form of Christianity that, like, I think that Monsignor Pruitt kind of ultimately kind of quasi comes across to, like, at the end of the show with his, in his kind of, like, heel-face turn, I guess, that he kind of undergoes, like, in the, in the kind of final episode. Looking at it from that, like, that, that's kind of the angle that I approached the show at. And I was kind of really interested in the way that it, like, attempted to represent that and attempted to represent this kind of, um, this tension. Which I think then is interestingly played out in the fact that, I guess, spoilers for anyone who hasn't watched the show, basically everybody dies, (laughs) like, at the end of the show. Like, there's this element to which, like, you have these two competing ideas of, like, America, essentially, that are being kind of staged on this island, um, on, like, Crockett Island. Is Crockett, actually, as a a query, like, is Crockett Island ever actually, like, located, like, geographically? Because it's off the coast, but, like, I'm not sure which coast or where. (laughs) I, I assumed it was east. Yeah, I, I assumed East Coast too, yeah. but I was I was curious if the show ever because I, I assumed it was a fictional island, but I wasn't entirely sure like where it was specifically supposed to be located. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, assumed the same. I thought it was mm. a fictional place. That's but, that's a great question. I never even thought about. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, essentially they're like they're staging this conversation around religious identity kind of in America through this vessel of kind of supernatural horror and through this contest between different forms of community that are being kind of played out. And 
essentially like, and then the show kind of concludes with essentially the fact that if if the one that's represented by Bev Keen like wins, quote unquote, it basically kills everybody. Like, with the exception of like a couple of survivors, like it destroys everybody else, but then it also destroys itself. Um, and I also thought, like, interestingly related to this is the fact that the the fact that the show takes place on an island, uh, in the context of the kind of quasi isolationist discourse that was kind of occurring, like during the Trump presidency, regarding like the role of America on the global stage. Mm-hmm. Um, like one of the themes that comes up in some of the kind of evangelical writers that I've that I've studied, uh, particularly the more Christian nationalist ones, um, when they're focusing on domestic politics, there's this focus on kind of internal purification that is like this kind of return to a an authentic idea of, of like American Christianity, but which then sets the stage for kind of overseas missionary projects and this kind of rebirth of American global power. Um, and I felt that that was interestingly staged, like, within within Midnight Mass in terms of, like, Bev Keen's image of kind of creating this purified, authentic religious community on the island that then was going to kind of set off in an arc to, like, transform the world, like, in accordance with its kind of new values that it had kind of created. Um, yeah. So, like, those are, those are some of my... Just a few, just a few little thoughts that I had (laughs) blow my mind. No, I'm, I'm, I am really uh, uh, amazed by, by what you're talking about, because I'm thinking to myself, yes, of course, this is all happening after Trumpism. And I'm wondering what what your opinion, Jonathan, is of what I was talking about with with this Karen phenomenon, Mm -hmm. whether, you know, if you take away gender, we just use Karen as the the indicator of this type of attitude, would you say that this plays into a political type of, uh, like an aftermath or a political, not, not maybe not so much aftermath, mm. but a political shift of the way people are behaving in the United States? Like in terms of the, the Karen phenomenon yeah. broadly. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of interesting because like, the concept of like the Karen is it's it's specifically racialized in the sense that it's generally like a white woman like complaining about often people of color, particularly black workers. Uh, like Bev Keen is definitely the kind of person who would speak to the manager. Like I think we should we should we should get that out of the way. Definitely. Um, <laughs> but it is this sense of like that that use of that use of a kind of racialized right or white authority to kind of reinforce particular forms of violence and power structures, which like in the form of the Karen is generally either the police through like calling cops on people or like the manager in the sense of the workplace, this kind of like in statement of like workplace discipline in order to kind of maintain and restore like a, a a proper hierarchy um, within society, I definitely think it like plays into like things like the Trump presidency and the post-Trump presidency, but primarily in the way that it like articulates those like underlying like racialized and gendered structures like within American society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I it 
When you're talking, it makes me think of that scene where they're all in the classroom having a little meeting about whether or not they can talk, they can read Bible verses in in a public school, and how Bev was talking to the sheriff about, mm. you know, if it were a Muslim uh, reading out of the Quran, it would, you know, that whole discussion. It there there seemed to be a discussion on many levels. There, it was religious, it was ethnic. Uh, Maybe even gender played a role in there. I'm not certain. Um, maybe the way Bev thinks that Muslim men think about women. You know, maybe there's all these, you know, these ideas in there as well. Uh, but definitely about that, you know, wanting to keep yeah. the authority over over everything. Uh, but yeah, the way like, she does well, it, it's just that sickening, yeah. sweet, very fake. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a specific weaponization of like a certain type of like I guess like mani- female managerial authority, if I want to term it. Like yeah. specifically like yeah. white yeah. white female managerial authority. Yeah. yeah. Um within that context. Yeah. Over those who she perceives as like below her station in terms of authority. Like specifically here, like like Sheriff Hassan is like the the sort of brown Muslim outsider who's kind of mm. come to the island. Um, yeah. And of course, like, that ties into the kind of underlying discourse of, like, foreignness and, like, having um, come from elsewhere um, and, like, therefore not having, like, a, like, quote-unquote, like, legitimate place within the community. Right. You know, when I was watching the show and it got to the point where uh, Dr. Sarah went to the sheriff and said, I think you need to sound the alarm because of, you know, what's going on. Mm. And he went into this whole story about his background and about, uh, you know, 9-11 and about being a Muslim and about all the things that happened to him and why he came to the island in the first place. And it was, you know, very much uh, politicized in, in, in his you know, his argument against why he wasn't going to do anything. I thought to myself, you know, that's kind of strange why he would use that as a, as a argument against doing something. But now that I'm going back and thinking about all of these other things that, as you said, there was just so many things kind of packed into this story, but yeah, this, this is actually an example of what happened in the classroom with Bev lecturing him about, you know, about what's right. So it's, it's all, yeah, it does seem to have a connection there and that's a deeper, a deeper, um, I guess a, a deeper argument, a deep, deeper discussion, a deeper tension that is probably there mm. for a lot of people. And whether, you know, regardless of whether it's about religion mm. or whether it's about ethnicity or whether it's about gender or whether it's about uh, an other type of mm. quote unquote other status, uh, you know, uh, economic, it, it doesn't really, I guess mm. it can apply to any, any strata, I suppose. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I'm starting to come to all these new insights now thinking about it and talking about it with you. So anyway, enough from my end. Brennan, did you want to add something? Yeah, I actually really kind of want to piggyback off of one of Jonathan's uh, main points, um, which is that this show uh, is occurring kind of, you know, in tandem with the cultural backdrop of the the Trump presidency. 
Simultaneously, monsters always occur against a cultural backdrop, even the same monster. Their monstrosity, uh, their core monstrosity may stay the same, but the way that this monstrosity is expressed or received shifts based on different cultural backdrops. Um, There's a historian of monsters, Jeffrey Jerome Cohen, who speaks of the monster's body as being uh, a culture's body. Basically, the monster is a projection of a culture's fears, insecurities, prejudices, and he actually uses the vampire to illustrate this. Um, So if you take, you know, Bram Stoker's uh, Dracula, uh, this was a vampiric monster um, as as a kind of beware of the strange, uh, kooky outsider or foreigner. Um, Moving to the the Nosferatu uh, vampiric representation um, as kind of a... um, representation of sexual lust and hunger during a cultural backdrop of fascism and extreme ultraviolence and oppression. Moving to um, what is that, Francis Coppola's uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, in which the Dracula is extremely uh, queer-coded and there's a lot of campy homoerotic themes, and this occurred against the cultural backdrop of the AIDS um, epidemic, pandemic. Um, and so after I watched the, the show Midnight Mass, I was pretty convinced that the, in a Stephen King-esque way, I guess, oh, the people are the monsters. That's the, the, the point of this. Right. And then now <laughs> thinking of this as, um, uh, thinking of the Midnight Mass being against the cultural backdrop of the, the entire Trump era um, actually kind of deepens this assertion for me because I do think that, I mean, obviously, um, the Trump era was extremely divisive and, and fascistic um, and kind of brought out, you know, the monstrosity that was bubbling under the surface. And this this show kind of plays on that a bit. Um, so I'm actually happy that you had said that, Jonathan, because I'm like, oh, yes, the monster's backdrop. This is perfect. It is situated. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, another point I guess I also wanted to make uh, in speaking of um, monsters um, was that typically, you know, if, if we look at a monster as a way to understand a culture and a religion um, by what this culture uh, fears, so obviously Lilith, um, her shifting mythos is uh, kind of moves with the times of um, increasing female empowerment or male powerlessness in the sexual arena, et cetera, et cetera. Um, however, in Midnight Mass, I feel like we can understand uh, the characters um, and their religious institution by the monster they embrace, which to me is the angel, um, and you know the embrace of Bev as the leader at the end. Um, and then, yeah, just lastly, because I prior to this uh, panel was thinking also of the angel as a monster, even though now I'm not convinced because maybe the angel is actually what Christians believe angels actually are, because the vampire word was never said. So. I'm a little uh, <laughs> shaky on this opinion, I suppose. Um, but in assigning the angel uh, as a literal monster that was then brought into the community by a religious leader, um, this this angel does fit t- the typical descriptions of what is monstrous. It's it doesn't respect borders, positions, the rules. Uh, it's abject. Um, it has the ability to fly. Uh, it has superhuman strength. It uh, has this monster in particular has a diet of, of blood. Um, it exists between thresholds, um, 
And usually that's, yeah, that's what makes, makes a, a monster so monstrous. Um, yeah, in Midnight Mass, it's what makes this monster kind of a holy. Um, and I thought that that was a really interesting subversion. I'm still even kind of like, after watching Midnight Mass, trying to play with that in my mind of like, okay, what now? A religious institution accepted a monster <laughs> and yeah. shifted the monstrous to the holy and what to do with that. But uh, that's, yeah, my rant. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your rant. <laughs> no, but very, very interesting uh, points that you raised there. Uh, a lot of uh, food for thought. I'm still thinking about it. I don't know if anyone else has anything they'd like to add. Yeah, I guess I'd like, I guess I'd like, because I mentioned it earlier, like, the positioning of the, the angel as, like, the, like, ambi- the, the, the ambivalent, well, like, ambiguousness within the show about whether it is actually an angel or not, or, like, like whether this is actually what angels are, um, as opposed to a thing that Monsignor Pruitt has discovered in a cave and, like, mistook for, for a holy being. Um... And I think that does actually an interesting thing, like to go back to the point I made earlier about like the forms of, I guess the forms of Christianity that are being kind of played with in the show. Because if we read, like as a religious studies scholar, and particularly as a religious studies scholar who studies like, like reactionary forms of Christianity, like one of the things that often like I come across are people claiming that these people are not Christian. They're like inauthentically Christian. And it's like, no, like that's not, that's not how religion works for a start. Like, like just because you don't like these people's form of Christianity or that it's harmful or it's violent, that doesn't make it inauthentic. That just means that, like, it's maybe not good for the rest of us. But, um, but I, think, I think the positioning of the angel as, like, potentially an angel, like, does interesting things regarding that because it shifts, it shifts the, like, structure from... The, a conflict between like a right form of Christianity and a wrong form of Christianity to a Christianity that will kill everyone if it wins versus like a Christianity that won't. And neither of these are necessarily like more or less authentic than the other, but one leads to an infinitely more violent like like solution um, at the end of it. And I think that's like I think that's one of the interesting things that like having the angels like relative holiness ambiguous like allows us to kind of look at through midnight mass Mm. do you think that that was deliberate that there was a deliberate choice in that i mean i'm just this is just a guess of course i I definitely think that like the there was a deliberate choice to like leave the angel like as as just the angel like whether that then ties into the broader point i made about the types of Christianity like I have no idea if that was probably not to be honest but who knows Uh, but I definitely think the ambiguity around the angel is interesting although Mm -hmm. there is something that I'm like really actually unsure about and I'd kind of like I guess like to pickle your brains over it is the where the angel comes from because like, like like Brennan was talking about like the history of the vampire as like a cultural symbol like particularly the context of Nosferatu, for example, like arising in the background of fascism. And like the angel, of of vampires, I feel that the angel bears like the most similarity to Nosferatu, like in terms Mm -hmm. of the trope. 
what does it mean in that context for the angel to have come from the Holy Land to America? <laughs> wow. Zing. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, actually, that, that I don't think was necessarily intentional, but it is something that has been playing on my mind. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Right, yeah, that's right. brilliant. How similar this vampire is to Nosferatu. Nosferatu was against the actual backdrop of fascism. The Trump era is a backdrop of fascism. Um, and then, yeah, now adding in this Holy Land tomb. I mean, that. Oh my goodness. <laughs> like it couldn't have been intentional, but if it is, that's blowing my mind. I mean, yeah. Add me to the list. I am, uh, yeah, mind that blown. Mean, what does that mean? Tommy, you're the uh, intertextuality <laughs> guy. What does this mean? Ah, good question. Well, <laughs> let, let, me, let, me kind of piggy, let me kind of piggyback off of both of them and, and see if I can tie it together a little bit. Um, I, I like what Jonathan's saying about the connection uh, between racialized uh, power structures in, in vampire lore here and the creation of foreignness and how we sort of regulate or demarcate a demos. Um, and, and also uh, Brennan's comments about uh, vampire cinema and how cinema mirrors cultural backgrounds and things like that. And it's interesting to think about because va- vampire lore or the myth of the vampire becomes popular in Europe around the late 17th, sort of early 18th centuries. And it's, it's related to uh, witch hunts and what they call vampire scares or sort of vampire hysterias, which are related to epidemics uh, in Eastern Europe where people were digging up uh, graveyards and burning the cadavers uh, because they were scared of disease. And it's interesting because uh, th- this happens at a time like late 17th, early 18th centuries. It happens at a time when Western and Central Europe are trying to develop their ethnicity. And the, the vampire lore, which sort of first develops in, in uh, Austria, Germany, France, th- these kinds of areas, uh, it was part of an ethnification process of Eastern Europeans and Muslims. So even at the very beginning of vampire lore, there is like this racial element to it. It's it's part of the the ethnification process, a very early like Mm -hmm. proto-anthropology. And to to sort of like see when, when vampire lore develops as a literary genre, one of the primary things about it is a, is a narrative of the struggle with disenchantment but also what we see is Christianity is almost always used as the, the remedy or the antidote to vampirism, right? You always, you present the cross, you throw holy water at the, at the vampire. And this is, uh, this is prominent even in, in books as early as Carmilla. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what, um, what Midnight Mass does is invert that a lot, right? Because it's a synthesis of biblical scripture with vampire lore. So it completely destroys this idea of Christianity as the antidote to vampirism. And I think it really is a reflection of the politics of the time and, and the cultural background of, uh, of vampire lore, not just as a, 
not just as a representation or a reflection of contemporary politics, but how contemporary how contemporary politics gets constructed and and recreated and navigated. Um, so, so I think that's very interesting to think about. And you know, one of the things that comes out of post critique or post criticism is a suspicion as to how much good writing about critical ideas, how much good comes from that, right? Like how much good do we actually get from writing about critical race theory or Marxism or, or things like that? But I think when, when we look at the art that gets made from different eras, I mean, if you, if you compare Bram Stoker's novel to Midnight Mass, we see completely different political dispositions. So I think if you, if you look at the art that's made in these different eras, we do see the, the political ramifications of critical theory. This, uh, point you made about this um, Midnight Mass synthesizing Christian literature with vampirism instead of presenting it as an anecdote or antidote. Same with the, instead of the hero priest motif, we have the enablist priest, I guess, the monstrous mm. enabler, perhaps, I think is a really interesting uh, point as well. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. I, Mike Flanagan did a lot with this show. <laughs> <laughs> he really did. did. He really, <laughs> really did. That's why we're here talking about it. But something that popped into my mind, Tommy, was that looking at the identity of the creature, whatever the the being was, uh, we'll call it a vampire for the sake of argument. When you look at other types of stories that have a either you know the the vampire as a monster or the vampire as kind of like an anti-hero in a sense where people are um where the vampire is actually more of a protagonist instead of the antagonist there there are strong identities that these characters have and in this show the vampire really has no identity the vampire is just like this empty vessel as it were that's used by the priest as the angel, but we don't really know what this being is. It's not, it's not spe- specified. It's just, it's, it's given an identity, but in, in an essence, it's just whatever it is. And it seems to be very uh, fluid, I guess, in the sense of, uh, goes goes along easily with what the what the priest wants. Uh, mm-hmm. It doesn't seem to resist that that interpretation. There really is no if, in my mind. I don't know what you guys think about it, but uh, in my mind, there doesn't really seem to be any strong sense of who this creature is, who this, whether it be an angel or a or a vampire. You know, in the in the stories that we have about about angels, you know, they have a specific purpose. There's a specific goals that that angels, you know, they they're created by God to serve God. Uh, and you know, as far as demons and and you know, they have they all have their own roles. They all have their own identities in that sense of this is what they do. But in this story, it's just this being that hangs out in a cave. In the Holy Land. So, and it's like, okay, you want to take me back with you and call me an angel? I'm cool with that. You know, but is there's like, there's no, you know, outward manifestation of, you know, it has its own will. What do you think about that? Yeah, like, 
I mean, I guess just to figure, because I, I, I had similar, because I was, this is one of those things I was thinking about when I was thinking about, like, the angel as, like, a figure in the story, is, like, an angel is, like, like you said, like, has a purpose, like, an angel is a messenger, and I'm, like, <laughs> w- w- what is the angel in Midnight Mass, like, actually, like, a messenger of? Like, it seems almost, like you said, to be, like, this kind of blank entity onto which like in Monsignor Pruitt, for example, kind of writes his his desires and his wants and his his like particular kind of religious um interpretations. But like right. the angel itself is just I mean it likes to eat people, it lives in a cave. Like like I think it's really interesting actually because like like I was reading I was reading like just like a review or an analysis like the other day. Um partly to prep for this. And it talked about how, like, the angel kept, like, Monsignor Pruitt alive and just restored his youth so that it could be transported. And I'm like, that's not in the show. Mm-mm. Like, there's no suggestion that the angel, like, set these actions in motion to be, like, taken to some island in the middle of nowhere off the coast of America. Like, as far as we can tell, this is all, like, Monsignor Pruitt's, like, plan. Um, there's no... Right. Yeah. Yeah, like, that doesn't that, that doesn't really like answer your questions, but like I, I guess I very much agree with your like mm. the questions there of your framing of it. That is that is true that there isn't really a lot of agency that this being has. Thank you for the word. I couldn't think of the word. <laughs> <laughs> he just kind of goes along, except maybe perhaps the one scene where he it's almost a little campy. I think he's wearing like a white hat and a white big flowy <laughs> shirt on the beach at night. And for that one moment I was like, oh, is this a monster, you know, enjoying the scenery or like just, it was like the most not human, but I guess autonomous mm. act that this being had done. And then uh, for the rest of the show, really just, yeah, not, not uh, much agency. It seemed. I interpreted the, uh, that scene on the beach as being uh, the, vampire dressed in the clothing of Monsignor mm-hmm. Pruitt, uh, but that it was going out for hunting, trying to find some oh. nourishment. That's how I interpreted it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but at the same time, because like Riley goes out to, to check on him and he just kind of runs away. Exactly. Like, yeah. It's like... Yes, like he could have attacked yeah. Riley in that moment. Yeah, as, as, as he does later exactly. in the show. Um, but there, she's like, oh no, don't look at me. <laughs> right. <laughs> Gotta get out of here. <laughs> um, he was nervous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like that, that is how it comes across. Like, it's like. <laughs> yeah, he definitely doesn't want to be found. Found out. Mm. Doesn't want to be found. Yeah. No, not then. Seems completely fine with dressing up in a priest's robes and walking down the center aisle of the of the church. Yeah, doesn't seem mm. to be bothered. So, I, yeah, that that was the only thing that I thought was strange about the character of the vampire, mm. whatever whatever the character is of that particular being. Um, is it, yeah, it seemed to be this empty, I guess, a signifier. And if we if we're thinking about you know about things, Tommy, what do you think? Yeah, it's it's interesting to think about. You know, if, if we, I, I think the um, the similarity between the vampire in Midnight Mass and Nosferatu is really important to emphasize. 
Um, I, I read that Mike Flanagan's favorite vampire movie is Werner Herzog's Nosferatu from 1979. Oh. Uh, and if, any, if anybody hasn't seen it, it's great. It's a beautiful movie. Um, and so if we consider Nosferatu a subcategory of the Dracula story, it seems, if you watch the original Nosferatu movie, the F.W. Murnau film from 1922, it seems Nosferatu is a bit of a simplification of the Dracula story and the Dracula character. Um, it's certainly more monstrous than the, than the original Stoker Dracula to some extent. It's a, li- it's a little bit simpler. It has less complexity. And then by the time you get to Flanagan and, and Midnight Mass... The, the monster design is clearly based on Nosferatu. Um, Flanagan says that Werner Herzog's Nosferatu is his favorite vampire movie. So, I mean, it's, it's obvious. It's right in your face. And, it, it's, and it's even a further sort of stripped-down version of the Dracula. Right? And, and I would argue Midnight Mass is definitely a Dracula story because if you look at the basic plot structure of it, what happens is there, there's a man who leaves his hometown and goes and gets the Dracula and brings it back to his hometown. I mean, that's the basic plot structure of Dracula. Right, right? So this right. is definitely a Dracula story. Yeah. But, and, but it's interesting to see that it's a continued evolution of the Nosferatu simplification. Um, so it seems like there is some kind of trajectory there about how the, the Dracula character keeps getting reduced to this empty signifier, as you say, Stephanie. And, and it's interesting. I, I'm trying to think how I feel about that personally as an artist, or if I were an artist, how I would think about that. Um, I think that it's a double-edged sword to sort of uh, use an overused adage, but I think on the one hand, I do feel less invested in the death of the monster, the fact that it's so stripped down and kind of empty to one extent. When I contemplate as to whether or not it died, there's less emotional attachment but it works great on, on the thematic and philosophical level because the empty signifier allows you to reflect in so many different directions, which is what's great about the, the literariness of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was great. I, I had a really, really uh, good time talking with you with you all. And you, you all brought up some really, really interesting uh, points uh, to think about. Um, if the viewers would like more of this type of discussion, please let me know in the comments. Uh, and if you like this, please, you know, give it a thumbs up and share it. Uh, I'd like to thank my guests for, for being here uh, with me today and taking the time to prepare things to talk about and for, for yeah, for just for, for that we could just kind of bounce our ideas off of each other. And I think, I think we came up with some really interesting points that hopefully the people who are watching this or listening to this will also be able to, uh, to think about as well. Hopefully they'll share their own ideas as well here, uh, in the, in the comment section. I really hope that that's, you know, that's kind of what the idea of this was all about to kind of, you know, foster a discussion. So yeah, I really enjoyed this. So thank you all. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, a pleasure and an honor to be here. Thanks so much.
Well, I really enjoyed seeing you all again and having this opportunity to just have a fun discussion today. It was really, really great. Thanks. Uh, so that's all for for now. Take care, everybody. Uh, and until next time. Bye.